Hello, I'm your host, Vlad Yunusov. This episode is supported by my law practice. Once in a while, I record the show for you. I love it, but my day job is commercial litigation, and I've been doing it for 12 years. I'd like you to know that your referrals are safe with me. You can find my contact information on my website at lotsio.ca. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is another episode of the Unisolve question. My guest today is Earl Cherniak. And uh, let me just start with a very brief introduction of Earl. He uh, practiced law for more than 51 years. He uh, has been a litigator. Practiced law. I'm still practicing law. He he has practiced law. Yeah, he's still practicing law. Excuse me, Earl. You're absolutely right. You're still practicing law. So more than 51 years of litigation experience. And I got to correct you. This is my 62nd year. Your 62nd year. Okay. So I, I remember I, I remember I was, this story. Pulet, I was called to the bar in 1960. 1922 is 62 years. Yes. And I remember the story. So when uh, uh, we talked recently, a, few, a couple of weeks ago, at the party where the Chief Justice of Canada was and Marie Hannon, um you told you asked me when i was born i told you when i was born and you said well i i had been a lawyer for a long time when you were born <laughs> so that's how i know you practice law for a long time more than 60 years a lawyer for more than 60 years you were a bencher of the law society in the 90s and in 2000s and uh, you were a commissioner of the Ontario Law Reform Commission. You are a fellow of both the American College of Trial Lawyers and the International Academy of Trial Lawyers. You received the Advocate Society Medal. You were a president of the Advocate Society. You were the first recipient of the Bar Association, Ontario Bar Association Award for Excellence in Civil Litigation. In 2001, this is interesting, you were appointed a member of the Federal Judicial Compensation and Benefits Commission as the nominee of the judiciary and served in that capacity until your term expired in 2007. And you were appointed independent counsel by the Canadian Judicial Judicial Council to inquire into the conduct of a Superior Court judge. So... Well, obviously, judges trust you, and uh, you have more than 60 years of experience. You are still very much a practicing lawyer. You are an arbitrator, a mediator. My first question to you is, do you still have an imposter syndrome? <laughs> you know, I, I I know what you mean by an imposter syndrome, and I've, I've often thought that some of the young lawyers and partners in my firm have the imposter syndrome because it's easy, especially when you're a young lawyer, to think that, uh, you know, I did well in this case, but nobody's ever going to hire me again because it can never happen again. I had a pretty good year, but it can't happen again. You know, I never had that. I always I always had a pretty good idea where I was going and how I was going to get there. But I know that some lawyers 
some lawyers and maybe even some maybe more female lawyers have that they don't believe that their next that they know where their next uh, where their next retainer is going to come from and i i've always i i tell i tell people you know you're a good lawyer word gets around it'll come yes well I want to start uh, by asking you about where you were born, and uh, we will slowly get to how you ended up where you are today. Where are you originally from? Windsor, Ontario. And, and, and it's interesting. Yeah. I live in Toronto, but I was born and brought up in Windsor, and people to this day, when people ask me where I'm from, I say, I'm from Windsor. I'm a southwestern Ontario kid. I live in Toronto. Do you, do you think the fact that you're from Windsor made any difference to your career as a lawyer? Well, I of course, I I kid the people uh, in my firm and elsewhere elsewhere in the profession that were born in Toronto, who were, who grew up thinking that uh, Toronto is the center of the universe. Those of us from the sticks, from Western Ontario or elsewhere in Ontario, never occurred to us before or after, before when we did from Toronto, that Toronto was the center of the universe. So, you know, I think, uh, I think growing up in a small town and I was a, I was a young Jewish kid in with a small Jewish community in the, in, in Windsor in those days was about a hundred thousand people. I think um, I, I had life experiences as a kid that, uh, that, that, that helped me in my career. Now, you know, there's a lot of, of lawyers, men and women who were born in Toronto, who were pretty good lawyers, and uh, so I'm not sure how much difference it made where I was born. But you know, everybody is a product of their life experiences. I mean, if you've read Marie Hennion's book, uh, you can certainly uh, you can certainly get that uh, get that impression. Were your parents born in Canada, or did they come to Canada from another country? No, I'm second generation. My, uh, my parents were both born in Canada. My father was born in Windsor. My mother was born in Montreal. Uh, were any either of them uh, a lawyer? No. No, my father was a businessman. He went into his... Uh, I don't know, I lost my picture. Yes. We want to see you. Sorry. I don't know yeah, that. there you go. Okay, sorry. Uh, and my father was a businessman. He, he, he was a retailer. He went into business with his father, who started out as, a, as an immigrant peddler and eventually started a store that became Cherniak and Company in Windsor. My father went into that business, as, as did his brother, and, uh, and my father eventually ended up as a menswear retailer in a company called Stuart Clothes Limited. Where did your grandparents come from? Uh, both sets of grandparents came from came from the Belarus part of Russia, now Belarus area. Uh, my paternal grandparents emigrated before 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 nineteen hundred in the eighteen nineties, and my uh, my maternal grandparents came to Montreal in the early nineteen hundreds. Did you feel any pressure as a kid growing up and as a young man to become a lawyer from your parents? No, never. You know, the pressure I had to the extent there was pressure 
my father very much wanted me to follow him into his business and expand it and uh, make it even a bigger operation than it was. So to the extent there was pressure, and, and, and really there was no pressure, I, I know what my father wanted, but uh, you know, I, I started working in the business when I was a kid, uh, summers and nights and weekends and, uh, and uh, over the Christmas holidays, and I realized early in the game it wasn't for me. Uh, you know, I'm looking at your CV, which you uh, emailed me earlier, and I think you're at that stage in your career where you don't even mention your education in your CV. It's so long, it has so many pages, and uh, I don't see anything about uh, what schools you went to. Could you talk about that a little? Well, I went to public and high school in Windsor. I went to uh, university in Windsor and at the University of Western Ontario. Uh, following my graduation from, from Western in 1956, I entered Osgoode Hall. I was in the last class uh, uh, that didn't have to take the bar admission course. We had a four-year course with uh, articling after the second year. And uh, in 1960, June of 1960, I was called to the bar. And uh, from May of 1960 to May of 1961, I clerked for Chief Justice McClure, who was the Chief Justice of, the, of what was then called the High Court, now the Superior Court in Ontario. And, and that, after the, that, where did you article? I, I article with the same firm that I'm with now, Learners. Uh -huh. At that time, there was about five lawyers, and was five, I was the sixth lawyer when I ultimately joined the firm as a lawyer in 1961, but I, I came back to London to article and uh, I articled uh, I articled with a small firm called Kaplan and Tatulis in in uh, Toronto when I came back for my fourth year in Toronto. So uh, I I articled with small firms and uh, I'm still with the, I'm still with a learner firm. It's a little bigger now than it was then. Learners. Is it then fair to say that you have been with learners for more than 60 years? I I, I article with learners uh, starting in 1958, so uh, I guess that makes it uh, 64 years. Has anyone who is living now been with learners longer than you? No. So you are basically the I, dean I, of I, learners. I, I am the senior partner. Now, my partner, Janet Stewart, joined us in 1969, so uh, she's been there a long time. She was the managing partner for many years, uh, so Janet would be the second longest serving lawyer in the firm. She she still practices in the firm now. You've you've watched learners change over the decades, and uh, you are. I think you were also one of the instruments of this change. You affected some of that change. How has learners, which is a very well known and extremely reputable firm here in Toronto? And in Canada, how has learners changed over the decades? I, I, I mean, I have to appreciate that the, uh, the practice of law, the legal profession that I entered in 1960 as a lawyer, bears no relationship to the legal, with the way law is practiced today. But I, I, I said this in a convocation speech that I gave not long ago. If a lawyer practicing 60 years before I was called to the bar, say in 1900, was called to the bar in 1960. 
he or she, and it would have been a he because there were no she's in those days, he would have very little problem uh, practicing in 1960 because the practice of law in 1960 was not very different. Trials were short. Uh, there was there was absolutely no technology, uh, but but a a lawyer now. I mean the the uh, what lawyers have to do now in twenty twenty or twenty twenty two is so different than than the practice I entered that the, that there's no comparison. So you know uh, the what we call the Seven Sisters in nineteen sixty the big firms that are. 500 to 1,500 lawyers, a big firm in Toronto, Hostlers and McCarthy's and Blake's, was 25 lawyers. So uh, have to appreciate, and, and no women. So have to appreciate that uh, learners have simply changed with the times. Now, a lot of firms our size didn't make it. Uh, we, we, we made sure in our firm that we, uh, that we, uh, 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 that we associated with very excellent lawyers, we were committed to the practice of law. Uh, we were early adopters of, uh, 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 of hiring women and people of quality, no matter what their race was, and uh, we thrived. And uh, and eventually, in the mid nineteen eighties, uh, I opened up a, a small office in uh, Toronto as a pure litigation firm. Our London office is a is a full service firm. But our Toronto office is, is a pure litigation firm, and uh, it's grown to fifty-five lawyers or so now, and and we have satellite offices in uh, Strathroy, Ontario, and Kitchener, Ontario. So you know, it's it's just, uh, but we had a philosophy of providing, uh, 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 providing excellent service <laughs> service if people had a defensible or, or or a prosecutable legal problem, we took it on. And well, we tried to get paid when we could, but we would never turn down anybody that had a good cause or a good defense. You know, for the first 10 years of my practice, uh, more than half my practice was criminal law. So, you know, I, I, we, uh, in my early years of practice, we were known as the firm for the little guy because the big guys would never hire us. Right now, we're a combination. Some, a, lot of, a lot of the big guys do hire us and the big, big girls do hire us. But we still act for the little guy, and it's still my philosophy. If, if if somebody's got a good cause of action or good defense, we'll take it on. So this is very interesting. You say that you acted for the little guy in the beginning of your career, and you still act for the little guy. I'm really interested in this transition, because if I think of some of your biggest cases, so, for example, the classic, uh, uh, the law school classic, white and pilot insurance on punitive damages, uh, or lack minerals and uh, international corona on uh, fiduciary duty and duty of confidentiality. You were not on for the little guy in those cases. So, in white and pilot insurance, you were on for the insurance company. And in Lock Minerals, you were on for Lock Minerals, which was the senior mining company, and uh, Corona was the junior mining company. So, how did you manage to uh, move from a, a, a little guy lawyer to counsel to some of the largest organizations and companies in Canada? Well, uh, you know, in the early years of my practice, our firm 
represented one insurance company and one insurance company only. And that was State Farm Insurance. Their London office was uh, in the same building that, <laughs> that we owned and practiced in. No other insurance company would hire us. We were considered, even, even though less than half the lawyers in the firm were Jewish, we were considered a Jewish firm. Insurance companies didn't hire Jewish firms in those days, certainly not in London, Ontario. But, uh, you know, but over the years, uh, we developed a practice taking on insurance companies that uh, that eventually insurance companies said, uh, you know, Lerner's got some pretty good lawyers. And, uh, you know, ultimately we... We hired people like my partner, Kirk Boggs, who does nothing but insurance defense work. And, and uh, you know, we got a reputation. And I developed a certain reputation as a lawyer. If you look at the cases I did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, a lot of them were in the Court of Appeal. A lot of them were high-profile cases. I was counsel to a to the Moran Royal Commission investigating the Metropolitan Toronto Police. So I developed a certain reputation. And, and a certain reputation for appeals. So just a, a state pilot and whiten, a, a, a pilot got severely and, and and quite properly beaten up in the whiten case because uh, if you want to go into it, I, I, can, I can talk a bit about why that happened. But uh, they got a million dollar punitive damage award against them for denying $155,000 claim in a house fire alleging arson when, the, when there was no arson. And uh, it was very clear in that case that their lawyers could not possibly take the appeal because the main, the principal reason that that a million dollar award was given was the misconduct of the lawyers as well uh, as pilot. So it's the pilot needed insurance company, needed appellate counsel. And they hired me because I, I had a significant reputation doing appeal work, and, and, and that's our that's our life minerals. And I, I didn't take the life minerals trial either, but uh, life minerals lost that trial, and uh, I guess they decided that uh, they uh, they wanted uh, experienced appeal counsel to, to work with their trial counsel on the appeal. I had, a, I had and still have a significant reputation doing appeals, and uh, I got the call. So, you know, it it, 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 uh, it didn't happen by magic. It just happened by the kind of practice I had and the kind of reputation that I had uh, developed. And, you know, and clients, especially sophisticated clients, they, uh, uh, if there was ever a time that that uh, the clients and the major companies only used one law firm, that time was long past by the 80s. The, uh, the sophisticated clients, whether corporate or, or otherwise, uh, start looking around for the best horse for the course. You were successful at the Court of Appeal uh, in the in the White and Pilot Insurance Company case. The panel was split, and this the issue on which the panel was split was the quantum of punitive damages. <laughs> that was the only issue before the court. I mean, we, we didn't. We didn't contest liability in that case. Uh, right. But it was, was, was clearly liable. The appeal was about whether whether the million dollar appeal of damage award could or could not stand. Majority of the of the Court of Appeal uh, reduced the damages 
$200,000, pretty good judges, Finlayson and Marvin Katzman. And uh, John Laskin issued a spirited dispute of uh, dissent and uh, would have uh, would have justified the, the million dollar award. I mean, there'd never been a punitive damage award anywhere in Canada that remotely yeah, amounted to a million dollars, fifty thousand dollars, seventy-five thousand dollars tops, and most of them were ten or fifteen thousand dollars. So it, it was pretty unusual, and uh, Supreme Court of Canada gave leave, and uh, and uh, Justice Penny, with only one dissent, uh, 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 upheld the million-dollar award. But the interesting thing is that while Pile Insurance lost that case. The insurance industry won the case because the criteria that Justice Binney laid down, which is still applicable today, uh, it is so hard to fulfill that punitive damages awards in insurance cases or almost any other cases are very few and far between. So the insurance industry uh, succeeded in limiting punitive damages awards for for evermore, even though pilot insurance lost the case. I want to uh, ask you more about the White and Pilot Insurance uh, case and specifically the Court of Appeal stage of that case. What was the oral argument like? When you were making oral submissions to the panel, did you have a sense that Justice Laskin would uh, rule against you what was it like making those oral submissions? It was twenty, almost twenty-five years ago. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I've known John Laskin um, for, for many, many years. He and I litigated against each other. Um, it didn't surprise me that he ultimately dissented. I mean, I, I guess if I would have thought about it, and I can't tell you, or I remember the argument, but I can't remember thinking, oh, oh, John Laskin is against me. You know, to the extent I thought anybody might against me, it would have been Marvin Katzman, who was one of the most sensitive human beings. He and I were exact contemporaries, and and he was one of the most sensitive and lovely human beings that I ever met. So I, I thought he might have been more sympathetic to the Whitens than it turned out John Laskin was. So... John Laskin got it right, obviously, because the Supreme Court of Canada agreed with him ultimately. What do you think uh, this signifies? This was this a a big change? What is a was this a watershed in the um, in the law of punitive damages? Well, it, it was a watershed, but not for the reason that I think you mean. It was a watershed in the law of punitive damages. Because there are almost no punitive damages awards in Canada now. Because if you read Justice Binney's very impressive judgment, the criteria he lays down would be fulfilled so rarely that the conduct would have to be so egregious in so many ways that uh, that, uh, that punitive damages awards, certainly punitive damages awards in the range of a million dollars, are very, very, very rare. Do you think this is an unintended um, consequence of Justice Binney's test? I don't think anything Justice Binney wrote was unintended. Understood. 
And uh, of course, apart from that case, uh, there is another uh, classic law school case and uh, a, a case that many lawyers cite in their factums that I would love to talk about. That's Lack Minerals and International Corona. And uh, you were on for Lack Minerals, which was this big mining company that uh, met with this little small mining company, International Corona. And then there was a lawsuit that was about... Uh, uh, a mine or uh, a land that uh, could generate uh, profits. There was an allegation of a breach of confidence. Do you think this case is mostly about breach of confidence or do you think this case is mostly about uh, fiduciary duties? Well, it, it was about both. I mean, and, and, and although there was a huge record and a 55 or so day trial, Ultimately, the two issues were: uh, did uh, did lack breach of fiduciary did have a fiduciary duty to Corona, and uh, and did it get confidential information and, and misuse the confidential information? Those were the two main issues, and and, uh, uh, and at trial, uh, lack lost on both those issues with a five judge with a five judge court of appeal. Black lost on both those issues. In the Supreme Court of Canada, Black won on the on the, uh, on the fiduciary duty issue, judgment written by, by Justice Sabika, but it lost on the breach of confidence and, and, and therefore the remedy issue, three to two. You know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the key reasons uh, were a one page. Judgment by uh, by then Justice Lemire, later Chief Justice Lemire, who agreed with uh, with uh, Justices McIntyre and Sapinka on fiduciary duty, found that there was no fiduciary duty, but he agreed with uh, Madam Justice Wilson and uh, Justice Lafaree on the breach of confidence issue and the remedy issue. So you know it, it was it was an extremely disappointing result because. Uh, uh, you know, the, the deciding judgment was a four-paragraph judgment. Two paragraphs in our favor and two paragraphs against us. But, you know, but 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 ultimately, Lack Minerals, the, the what Lack Minerals is most usually cited for now is a fiduciary issue in which Lack Minerals won. Unfortunately, they lost the case. They lost the appeal. And they lost the mine. You were not uh, the lawyer, the trial lawyer in this case. You were only involved uh, starting at the Court of Appeal, correct? Yeah, and that's that's very common in my appellate practice. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly did, especially in the early years. Uh, I appealed the cases I lost and uh, was in the Court of Appeal on some of the cases that I won. But in later years, the reputation I developed as an appellate lawyer, I most often was was hired at the appellate stage. Another interesting thing about the Lack Minerals case is that your opposing counsel in the Court of Appeal and in the Supreme Court was, was Alan Lenzner. Well, Alan Lenzner and Ron Slack, but they were trial counsel. They were successful trial counsel as well. And, you know, I, I litigated with those guys many, many times in many, many different cases. And they, they were very formidable, formidable counsel. Are they approximately your age? Uh, no, they're younger than me, but they're both retired. 
Okay. Uh, you said that you litigated many cases uh, against Alan and Ron. Can you tell us more about this relationship? They're both, uh, as you said, formidable lawyers, very well-known lawyers in Canada. I, I really want to hear more about your relationship with them. Well, I mean, we were good friends. I mean, you know, I, 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 I won't say that I, I had a good, I had a perfect relationship with every lawyer that I litigated against, but I, but I certainly, principally, uh, I'm not sure who's calling me, but I'll get that later. Uh, I, I, I uh, but I mainly had a very good collegial relationship with uh, with with all the senior lawyers, all the lawyers, junior seniors that that I litigated with, and uh, and uh, you know and and, and Ron and and uh, Ron and Alan were no different. They they were with McCarthy's for many years before they opened up Langston's flat. And uh, uh, so they defended the Canadian Medical the Act for the Med Canadian Medical Protective Association acted for doctors in those days. Uh, I and, and my firm had many, many malpractice cases. So uh, a number, not certainly not all, but a number of the cases that I had uh, with with uh, either Alan or uh, or Ron on the other side. Were were malpractice cases, and you know they were they were hard fought, and uh, we won some, we lost some. But uh, you know I, I I respected them. I think they respected me, and uh, you know we would socialize. We were not personal friends, but uh, but uh, we we had, and I had with most of the people that I litigated with a, a very collegial relationship. You wrote. Um... In your essay that I recently read in the Boomer magazine, that you stopped being a voting partner at Learners at the age of sixty-five. That's true. I, you know, I I saw the growth of the firm from the time I joined in nineteen sixty when we were five or six lawyers to uh, where we were seventeen years ago in in two cities. Uh, you know, I, I was never I never wanted to be the managing partner. Of the firm, but I always took a very significant role in, in partnership meetings and the future of, of the firm and the philosophy of of the firm. But by the time I got to be age sixty five, uh, and I, I was still at a very busy counsel practice, my arbitration practice was uh, was uh, was booming. I had just recently become. A, a venture of the lost side, which I did in 1999 when I was 64, I guess. And uh, that went on for eight years. And I just had enough partnership meetings. And, uh, you know, I, I continued because I'm still with the firm. And I continued to take an active role in the firm, firm affairs. And I gave advice to my more senior partners, sometimes when they asked for it and sometimes when they didn't. The amazing thing to me is that years, years after you were 65, years after you stopped being the voting partner, you continued practicing law, but years after 65, you did one of the biggest cases of your career, one of the most influential cases for the legal profession in Canada. You did the Groya case, Groya and the Law Society of Upper Canada. How long did that case take? Well, okay, 
And for, for, for Bill Coy, he started to defend to defend uh, uh, Felderhoff, John Felderhoff, I think, in 1996 or so, in the Felderhoff trial, which went on for about eight years, eight or nine years, started in 1999. So for Joe Goya, between about 1997, when he started to act with Felderhoff in 2018, it was, it was 21 years. Uh, Joe Goya retained me in 2009, May of 2009, when, when not long after the Felderhoff trial finally ended, when when Justice Wynn, in the 600-page judgment, found uh, found Felderhoff not guilty, and uh, and the Law Society, which had deferred doing anything up to that point, uh, issued a complaint against Joe, a professional misconduct complaint against Joe, even though. Even this since 2000, May 2009, even though no one had complained to the Law Society, and uh, and the Law Society based its entire complaint against Joe on reasons of the Court of Appeal and uh, of Justice Campbell and the Court of Appeal in the Felderhoff judicial review cases that took place in 2003. 2004. So, I've also did no investigation, whatever. They didn't even have a transcript of the trial. But they, but they, uh, they charged Joe in 2009. And Joe called me up. I knew Joe. I'd litigated against him once or twice. So, but, you know, but I didn't know Joe well. We were certainly, you know, we were, we were colleagues, but uh, didn't have much of a relationship. But Joe called me up and certainly was a Kind of case that uh, that I would take on gladly because it was so interesting, and Joe was that was such an interesting uh, in, interesting client. But that case never should have gone forward because when I was a bencher, I had set up something something called uh, the, uh, uh, the the administrative type review for for cases. Just like that, which would, which, if it applied to this case, would have uh, ended up in a in a private hearing, and a one page summary of that hearing, and the law society placed conditions on it that when I was a bencher had never been mentioned, so th so that didn't work. So, fast forward to two thousand and eighteen when when the when the Supreme Court of Canada came down with its reasons uh, in favor of Joe, and that was the first time that Joe had won at any stage. Uh, so I, I was involved for, for nine years, May 2009 to June, June 2018, and Joe was involved for about, about 21 years. So it was a long while, certainly one of the longest retainers that, uh, that I've ever had. But it's interesting because we 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 tried to quash the the complaint. We lost. We lost before the Law Society hearing panel. We lost before the appeal panel. We got leave to appeal to the divisional court. We lost. We got leave to appeal to the Court of Appeal. We lost for the dissent. And we got leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. And Joe won six three. So it was. It was a fascinating retainer, and uh, I got to know Joe very, very well. We became and remain 
very good friend. Uh, I did my best to convince him to to run for bencher because I knew because uh, I knew he'd be a very good bencher, and he did. And he's been a bencher for uh, for two terms. So uh, you know, it, it was uh, and and the argument in the Supreme Court of Canada was. Uh, I've argued in the Supreme Court of Canada more than 50 times, but uh, that argument was one of the most interesting uh, uh, that, uh, that I've ever done. And, and it was the first time that any of my family came down to actually see me appear in the Supreme Court of Canada, my entire family, uh, my kids, their spouses, my grandchildren, and lots of friends came down to actually watch the appeal and, and uh, they got a show. It was one of it was one of the most watched live appeals that that I can recall. It was a great retainer. Why do you think? The... You know, but I, I mean, so I was uh, two thousand and nine. I was seventy four years old. And, you know, why yeah. wouldn't I get retainer? On? Yes, it's incredible. So this case took uh, a decade, pretty much. Yeah, almost. Uh, almost a decade. Uh, by the way, it's another great, huge uh, historical case where you had Lenzner Slat on the other side. Uh, well, I, 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 Tom Curry, another side. Tom, Tom Curry was, was with that firm, and Tom Curry acted for the law society all the way through. And I've said many times, I've, I've told this to Tom, I, I thought he'd drive, he drank the law society Kool Aid on. Uh, on the civility issue, and uh, you know, and up until the Supreme Court of Canada, he was successful. I can't imagine what it feels like when you lose every step of the way. You lose at the tribunal, you lose at the appeal division, you lose at the divisional court, you lose at the court of appeal. What kept you going? Did you know you would ultimately win? And also, do you think that there are systemic reasons for why the Supreme Court of Canada overruled so many levels of court below it. Is there something that everybody should take out, take away from this, apart from reading the reasons for decision? Well, you know, man, we could spend the whole hour on my views of how that case went, went as it did. And you know, I went to the Supreme Court of Canada because the uh, the appeal panel had decided had decided the case and the uh, uh, and the and the court of appeal has put decision but justice Cronk gave a 90 justice Cronk gave a 90 page reasons upholding the uh, let me get the picture back here justice Cronk wrote 90 pages upholding what the appeal panel did on the basis that what they did was reasonable and uh, and uh, the courts had to defer but it took 90 pages to review the entire case to do that and uh, there was a 65 page dissent so you know there was a difference of judicial opinion so when I with the Supreme Court of Canada I had to get around the the, the standard of review because a reasonable standard review, as I'm sure you know, is very hard to upset uh, because courts give deference to uh, administrative tribunals making uh, 
making uh, making determinations as long as they're reasonable. And you know, court of appeal and ninety degree judgment said said it, it was reasonable. So so I came up with that. A bunch of uh, several arguments as to whether they were correct. Uh, I talked about access to justice. I talked about freedom of speech. I talked about. Uh, I argued uh, independence of the judiciary, independence of the bar, the importance of resolute advocacy, and of course, I I, I did make the submission that the uh, that the decision was unreasonable, and ultimately, and and, and the argument went on that basis. And if you've ever watched the fascinating argument in, in the Supreme Court of Canada, all those issues, all those interesting issues, independence of the judiciary, freedom of speech, and the like, they're all canvassed in the argument. But if you read the reasons, and you read the majority reasons of Justice Moldaver, he, he, he decided the case on the basis that the appeal panel's decision was unreasonable because they had, they had found that uh, that Joe had had, a, had had an honest belief in the submissions that he was making, and that he didn't make them in bad faith. And, and, uh, and what, what they found was that the the legal argument that he was making he shouldn't have made because he was wrong. In the Supreme Court of Canada, Justice Moldaver said uh, uh, it, it didn't matter that the submission that he was making was wrong. And we all make submissions to the court that are that are wrong, that are not accepted. But but the fact that he had an, uh, an honest belief in good faith that uh, in the submissions that he was making, and because the law on the particular issue was in a state of flux, he found the decision that was unreasonable, and he got five judges to to agree with him. And the only judge that paid any attention to the uh, to the legal arguments that I made about the independence of the judiciary and the way law societies shouldn't interfere with how judges conduct trials was Justice Cote, who agreed in the result. So you know it's a it it's a very complex case. I mean it's it's not easy to upset a ninety page judgment of the Court of Appeal. Where they found that the lower that the lower tribunal was reasonable, but to get back to the first part of your question, I mean lawyers like me lose all the time, and when we lose, we appeal, and and when we, and when we win, the other side appeals. So you know, losing is just part of it. You know, I, I've been practicing litigation for my entire career. I've lost a lot of cases, and and, and I've appealed a lot of cases. And sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. So you know, losing is just part of what we do. Is it fair to say that you learn more from cases you lose than from cases you win? Do you think it's true? Well, I, 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 sure, sure, that's obviously true because every time I lose a case, I think of uh, all the things that I should have done and all the things that I shouldn't have done that if I'd only done them or not done them, the result would have been quite different. And sometimes I think of those things about 10 minutes after I step out of the courtroom. Every lawyer does that. The French call it the uh, something about, uh, the, uh, the thoughts on the staircase, escalier. But you know, every, every lawyer loses uh, learns a lot more from the cases that you lose when you analyze why I lost them. You know, in in most cases, had I done the things that I wish I'd done, or not done the things I think I'd done, the result probably would have been the same anyways. But you know, but it never—it doesn't stop lawyers thinking that. 
you practice law you you practice law for more than 60 years you are i don't know are you the most senior member of the bar in ontario today do you know anyone who is more senior than you well there's a couple of my classmates that are that are still that are still practicing law to, to one degree or another and a couple of them are actually older than i am but uh, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know the answer to your question but there can't be many other people still practicing law after 62 years at the bar and at my age lawyers your opposing counsel today are probably much more junior than you i mean i'm sure there are no 20 somethings or even 30 somethings among your opposing counsel today but i don't think there is any doubt that almost all of them are much much more junior than you since they're so much more junior than you what advice would you give to them as junior lawyers relative to you uh, as opposing counsel to someone like yourself when when they appear in court against you i mean if you i mean i i, I work now i except for arbitrations there's very very few files that i'm fully responsible for i i work with more junior lawyers and many of them are partners many of them are in their 40s 50s or even 60s uh and uh and some of them in my firm and some of them are in outside firms that retain me but the most important thing important thing and i and i certainly tell all the all the junior lawyers and i've heard this the most important thing that you got is your reputation so you know you can you can hard work you can know a lot of law and you can do all the hard work you want but if you don't have a reputation for poverty and for ability, and, and uh, you're not going to get anywhere in the practice of law, certainly not with the courts. So, you know, the advice that I that, that I would give to young lawyers is uh, work as hard as you can, uh, you know, get yourself known in the profession, but remember, no client's case is worth, is worth affecting your reputation. Well, this is uh, powerful advice, and uh, I, it certainly is um, very concordant with uh, a lot of the things that other guests uh, of the Unisov question have said, uh, judges and senior lawyers, and uh, it's, it's extremely valuable. I want to thank you for doing this interview I hope uh, as many junior lawyers as possible watch this. And when I say junior, they could be 20, 30 years uh, out, but they, I think they can still benefit from, from listening to you. And definitely young uh, lawyers and law students will uh, find this very, very valuable. Uh, Earl, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I want I, to wish I, you all the I best. One thing. Uh, yes. What you said. When I was a young lawyer, uh, if I had, if I the way the profession worked in those days, if I had a serious problem in a case, criminal case or an ethical problem, I could call up senior lawyers in the profession who didn't know me from a hole in the ground. Uh, and, and for instance, Arthur Martin, who was the leading criminal lawyer of his day, he would take calls from lawyers like me at five o'clock in the afternoon or six o'clock in the afternoon. And answer their questions, and you know, and and I think that's something that that people like me, or, or even more senior but more junior people than me, 
should be doing. And you can, and, and people can still call me. I, I have an open door policy in our firm. Anybody can come in and talk to me about anything. And anybody outside the firm can call me about anything. I answer, the, I answer my own phone. That's amazing. Well, we're not going to publish your phone. Your phone is your on your website, uh, law firm website profile, so people can easily find it or your email address. I always prefer when people send me email rather than call. Um, thank you. This is uh, very generous and uh, it's good advice. Call senior lawyers, call Earl Cherniak and uh, I'm certainly grateful for running into you several times at various parties. And every time I talk to you, I took away something valuable, something important that I didn't know before. Thank you again, Earl. And I wish you all the best in your uh, future career. <laughs> well, thanks, but I, I, I wish you the same. It, it was a pleasure meeting you.